So I'm going to read the Shakespeare. We've already read it. I know you have, but you starting you know? Yeah. You starting both. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, but next couple of weeks, if we do meet, I'm going to um, choose some some of the more traditional penitential psalms. Like I think 50 is one of them. I can't 30, 35. Um, up till Easter, and then I'll try to find something on Easter that's appropriate. I'm, I'm not sure that a lyric has done justice to Easter, but but we've got the penitential psalms, and you know that I'm treating the psalms as lyrics. They are. David played them to the lyre. There's this beautiful picture I saw the other day with David and angels around him playing the lyre. Um, I can't remember. It was, I think it was a penitential psalm. Anyway, that's what we'll do for the next <coughs> couple of weeks, um, just to speak to um, all the disciplines or penance any of us are taking on. Okay? So, any, any prayer requests? Um, besides the large one. <laughs> Good yeah. health for everyone. Yeah, and protection. These are on, Doc, for sure. Yes, sir. Okay, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, living comes so natural to us. It does to so many people, and the fact that so many people do it without acknowledging you is just a reminder how easy it is to take you for granted. Help us not to do that. Um, most of us in the room are getting close. Um, help us to do all we can to make preparations, um, take them seriously. I ask that all of us be strengthened in our Lenten commitments and where we fail or trip or stumble, to not despair, um, to, to know that every one of those occasions is an occasion for um, trusting more in you, hoping more in you, um, learning to put ourselves away. Um, Strengthen our resolve to put our sins away and grow closer to you, to bring you to all that we do. I ask a special blessing on all, um, all of us here. Um, keep us uh, protected from this virus. Um, um, help our country uh, manage this in a good way. Um, um, but meanwhile, surround all of us here with your protection. Um, protect us against any contamination um, and those we love um, who may be at risk without even knowing it because they may be around people who have it who don't know it so help us to be careful and um, right now um, help us to give ourselves to this work it speaks so directly to us the things we don't often see that are so much a part of us as a people um, help us to live whatever truths we take from them. And we are grateful um, for this work that we're doing together. I am. Um, it's a pleasure for me to think of all of us struggling in penance, a um, purgatory. Um, there's a strength in doing this together. Um, I'm grateful. I hope I'm speaking for everybody um, for the work that we do together. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to do the Shakespeare's um, sonnet. You can 
you can pull your Shakespeare. Just listen. You don't have to look for it. <coughs> we've, we've done this before. Um, we've done this one before. Tuck on, wait, go ahead. The, the one that I'm going to read from, it may be a little bit different from the one you guys have. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I've um, amended it, but the one that I'm going to read has a change in the second line. You remember, poor soul, center of my sinful earth. There's a change in the second line, and it, I, I just think it reads better. It, it, apparently, scholars, <coughs> there have been reasons for scholars to wonder about what happens at the beginning of that line. I don't know if it's a blurring in the original text. I don't know. but <coughs> Anyway, remember, <coughs> um, this is part of a larger sonnet cycle. Shakespeare was following Petrarch, the um, Italian who'd written this sonnet cycle to Laura, his beloved. And I'm, most of you won't know this, but he put Laura on a pedestal. Shakespeare won't. If you, I, I read, you probably won't remember the song, but remember when he describes his mistress, the hairs like wires and you know, skin like. I mean, um, but he but he said. <coughs> that he would challenge anybody to say that his, he loved his mistress, his wife, less than any of these Petrarchan lovers because Shakespeare would have, would have believed that they were all being sentimental, overdoing things, and not loving in the right way. Um, he wrote a sonnet cycle, and it's much deeper and in some ways more realistic than Petrarch in lots of ways. One of them is it, there's a triangle involved. There's a young boy and a dark-haired mistress. So there are betrayals. He worries about this young kid who's so talented that he may succumb you know, to the charms of this woman. And If you read isolated poems, you won't get a sense of it, because you can read so many of these poems in isolation. But there's a backstory, and that backstory is these three people. But it, it, his response to this story is that it puts his mind on a great variety of things, art, the woman, the love, the young kid, the poet, so he covers everything in the sonnet cycle. It's just a very rich and deep collection of poems. Okay. This one's penitential. Okay, it's 146, Poor Soul. <coughs> Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, foiled by these rebel powers that thee array. So we take all this care of our bodies, put on clothes, homes, cars, all the things of the flesh um, that we heap on this body at the neglect, at the expense of the soul. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, foiled by these rebel powers that thee array, these closed outward things that we put on. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth? The loss of things because we give so much attention to our body. Painting thy outward walls so costly gay, why so large a cost, having so short a lease, dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend? Body's going to die. We're all mortal. Soul's going to live on. Why do we give such attention to something that has such a short life against eternity? 
Shall worms inheritors of this excess eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store. Um, deny the body, because with all of your denials, you're just increasing the, the life of your soul. You're doing so much more for that which is eternal in you. Um, is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store. By terms divine and selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. Deny yourself, it's penance. The prayers this morning in the Mass were wonderful. It was talking about, I can't remember the language, kind, but it was the something like the rewards of penance the mystery of what's given to us in penance, you know, giving things up. We then be fed without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. Deny ourselves, do what we can to take the body away, deny it, we take death away, because that's the mortal part of us. We increase our life, um, there's no more dying. He's not explicit about this, but it would be, we live more with Christ. He doesn't say that, but... So, okay. Dostoevsky. Um, I just want to um, briefly review these three things, the, the major theme, the novel, and the Inquisitor that we looked at. And Fred reminded me of a question that I asked. I'd like to take it up, but I, I, don't, I don't want to give it too much time because I want to get on um, back to the book, but let me just quickly cover these things and then deal with that question, and then I want to turn to the, what's happening with the Zosima story and the, and the whole plot. The great theme, of, as I've suggested, is that a nation is undergoing a trial of faith. Um, you remember, there's nobody in this book that isn't touched by, rocked by, the changes that are taking place in in old holy mother Russia. Um, an old traditional way of, of living is being forced to give way to modern non-religious ways of living. They're all the rationalistic ways of life that were introduced into the West and the Enlightenment <coughs> period. Um, rational modes of dealing with the world replace faith and almost the almost godlike powers they seem to give man encourage him to doubt the old ways um, even to question the existence of God and even love. So man is once again, um, he can't take anything for granted. He has to deal with ultimate questions. Is there a God? What happens if you doubt him? This is really crucial. If you got into the um, Ivan Smirjikov visits when Ivan is visiting Smirjikov, or even before that, remember before he goes to that town, um, he has that meeting with um, Smirjikov, and I think the tendency of most people is just read it as if nothing's happening, but it's one of the it's one of the most sinister scenes in the book, and not in an obvious way. Um, Smirjikov keeps suggesting that something's going on that Ivan is uh, um, unaware of, and Ivan, who, who we think is supposed to be one of the most intelligent people in the book, one of the finest intellects, has no clue. And if you, I don't want to give things away, but if you've gotten on and, and you've read, or you, when you do read those three chapters, 
where Ivan meets with um, Smirjikov, you're going to realize just how sinister things are um, and, and realize this too. That part of the beauty of what Dostoevsky is doing in those scene, scenes is showing that there's a sinister evil present in our life, here in the novel, that nobody sees. They're just walking around it, you know, they're not seeing it. So there's a lot going on here um, <coughs> with this doubt of God, particularly by, intellectual, by intellectuals, because Ivan is. Um, <clears throat> I suggested last week that if the book is a window looking in on Russia after it's been influenced by these Western powers, it's also a book looking out. We can turn our gaze the other direction. It seems that we can learn a lot about America or the West. The way in, the way in which the West, I'm, I would suggest, throw this out, the way in which the West uses reason to cover up sins, to deny them, explain them away. Um, I, and I've recommended that book to all of you, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. It's in that book that he says, one of the most pressing problems for our time is to develop good hearts. That there's this great emphasis on the intellect and it's, um, it's shrunken the heart, it's dried it up. One of the most important things we can do in our lives is learn to order our hearts, our, our emotions, to, to love better. Um, because the he says it isn't so much enlarged heads that we're suffering from, it's from what he calls men without chests, men without well-developed hearts. Um, because we've been called to love. You know, I mean, we've still got to use our intellects, but our call is to love. Um, so it's a wonderful book. It's showing us something about Russia, but it's also, I think, indirectly showing us something about the modern world, what's happening in the modern world. And I think it's prophetic in some ways uh, for us because it shows us something about ourselves. We've talked about the novel and the narrator. I don't want to go back into all of that, but I just remember, remind you of the three qualities that I'm finding in the book. It's Manipian character, it's detective character, and it's carnival character. Remember, Manipian satire is like a fractured mirror. It, it, um, it shows a disorder in a whole people. And I, I've suggested that um, Fyodor Kermazov is the um, image type of that Manipian um, um, idea that in him we see a man um, who's completely lost any sense of himself, who doesn't know it's right, who easily makes a fool of himself, and yet, ironically, um, he's, he is in some ways far more truthful about things than everybody else. Mm -hmm. He goes back into the monastery, he tells all the brothers, the monks, that they're hypocrites, that they're feeding on the poor. There's a truth to that. Later in the novel, strangely, I, I mean, if I were to, well, I don't want to ask this, but if I were to ask anybody, which one of the sons most resembles him? In fact, let me throw it out for quick, just 30 mm -hmm. seconds. Which one of the sons most resembles uh, Fyodor? What would you say? Because every one of them says, I'm a Karamazov too. Mm -hmm. Alyosha says it a number of times. Dmitri says it a number of times. The only one I can't remember, I can't remember Yvonne saying it, but if you had to say one of them was more more resembled than the the father than the others. Who would you say? Ivan. Hmm? Ivan. Why? 
Have you the, read? Is that why? Or I, well, I finished the book. Go, oh, have you? Yeah. So you. I, I, I think that if you look at Theodore's shortcomings and his inability to ultimately deal with the reality of what's going on around him, I think Ivan most fits that persona. I, I know a lot of people would say Dimitri, mm -hmm. certainly not Alicia by any um, any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but I think many people would 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 say Dimitri maybe. But to me, there's a side of Dimitri that is struggling to overcome the other Dimitri persona, yeah. and I think it ultimately does. So, and Theodore never exhibited any of that ever. Right. So that's. Yeah. Anybody else? Debbie, you were shaking your head about Dimitri? No. The, no, I thought, sorry, I thought you were. No, it was, <coughs> go ahead. <laughs> she was going Dimitri. Well, it's just everything I've been reading online and I'm hearing different, you know. Stay away from, they say, online, you mean not other sources, but on the book? Yeah, and then just even comments. Well, that's a good point, yeah. Be careful, be careful of what you read. I mean, how could... <laughs> I'd say be really guarded about what you read online because what critics do say that. just astonish me so often. Yeah, like, say it. It's, a, it's great. What? Ask Frances that question. She's Frances, got a great come answer. on. Come on. Well, maybe, maybe it's Smirnoff. Go ahead. The, the bastard son. Yeah. That's more like How? Him. Well, he's pretty evil. Pretty. <laughs> He's the Russian Iago. Right. <laughs> don't go there. I don't. Like, I don't know where you guys are. I'm trying to be careful about the ending, but yeah, I think it's a great response. I didn't even <laughs> think about that. That yeah. ironically, now you know who the intelligent one of the family is. Listen to our wives. Ironically, <laughs> the one that you know, all he he wanted acceptance. See, because Smirnoff wanted acceptance. Oh, well, in some ways, I mean. Yeah, he wanted to be accepted as, but. Uh, but ironically, the bastard son is more like yeah. that than the other. <laughs> it's it's really interesting you say that because in one sense I think he he lacks acceptance and wants it, but he also um, rejects everything Russian absolutely yeah. at his at, at the heart. He wants nothing to do with them because intellectually he so identifies with <laughs> these influences in the West. Okay, so the Manipian aspect that the. Um, I've said this before, I just think it's one of the great truths in this book that he shows us and make, and we saw it in Moby Dick, for sure, we see it in Shakespeare in different ways, but here in real depth, when a nation, when a people undergoes radical changes, it leaves people not knowing what's right. They get lost. And the codes, the old codes by which they lived are gone. They have <coughs> no way to take their bearings. And I thought that was just a profound, one of the profound aspects. One of the interesting <coughs> insights it led me to is that it's, it's interesting when, whenever this sort of thing happens historically, it seems to me there's a, a good in it because once you lose your center, you have to question the way you've been living and look for a center. And I suggested last time, the only unchanging center is Christ. And it seems, by the way, I, I think this is so much a part of most of the literature we read. The Iliad starts the same way. People are living by this honor code that's got a flaw in it, serious flaw. So many works of literature deal with people on a threshold where they've been, it's like customs and habits and practices have become calcified. 
and unreal. They don't answer spiritual needs. And there's a revolution, and in the midst of that revolution, people no longer take metaphysical principles, the deeper principles, for granted. They have to, they have to go back and question those things, those metaphysical depths. And it's during that time that the great artists arise, and they learn to discover what those truths are again. Here it's, it's Christ. Um, so there's this paradoxical tension at the center of this book. Um, people are lost searching for something. Um, everybody's involved in a struggle to love or to reaffirm their faith or throw it away. Um, so the tensions, the tensions are deep and grave because ultimately they deal with spiritual matters. Um, we looked at the Grand Inquisitor, the three miracles. Just, I'll go over the three and br briefly remember in the first one. In every one of them, the, the, the gravest danger is that, is that um, people will use God or diminish him for the things they want on this earth. So when Satan takes Christ, and, who's uh, been fasting for 40 days and is starving and says, turn these stones into bread, we're to understand that um, the danger for Christ and the, and the danger for us that he makes us aware of through this temptation is um, that we can make self-preservation and our material comfort here more important than God. When we do that, we undermine mystery, we take mystery out of our life. If, if we always have bread, if we always have the things we want, how often would we turn to God? If we had everything the way we wanted, why would we turn to God? Our, our life would, there would be a sufficiency to everything we do here. So the danger is the more importance, we, this is the poem, the poor soul, center, you know, center of my son, poor the more important that we make things here, the, the danger for us is diminishing the role of mystery in our life and faith. I'm not turning to God, staying, following Him in His ways. The second is the same thing in another form. It, it's um, Satan taking Christ to a high place and said, look at all this below you. Um, I, I'll give it to you to rule if you bow down and serve me. And Christ says, the Lord thy God says, serve no other gods. You know, but me, he can't. And the danger, once again, is um, we can make authority, power, and control greater than our love of God. And the, I, one of the ironies in that temptation is if Christ submits to Satan, um, he's in charge. So indirectly, we would be doing everything we did under him. So... That's a pretty serious danger too. Um, the third one was that um, in, uh, he took him to the temple and said, if you're God, throw yourself off because the ministry and angels will save you. Um, and Christ says, um, you don't tempt the Lord thy God. So it, it's really beautiful. In each of the instances, he's quoting scripture. And it's it, the, part of the wonder of this is you know, people pick scripture passages out, and I, I would venture to say, I mean, Protestants are famous for reading scripture far more than we are, sadly. Um, but how, how, how well do people read scripture? You know, I, I, there's a young girl who's doing the PT who was just baptized. I really enjoyed this. She's just such a good, she just was baptized. I think it's in a, in a Baptist community. So I asked her when she was to go back to Genesis at the fall and 
we did that for one of my PT meetings, and then last week, a couple of weeks ago, I asked her to do the Temptations come back, and it was interesting going through it with her. I think she got the first one really well, and then reached a point where she said, I just love this girl. She said, help me out, help me out. We went you know, through the last two. But how many people actually look at those temptations in an effort to see what they mean for us? You know, we, I, I don't think I'd done it until I read Dostoevsky. We, you hear these things in church after year after year, pretty soon it's like a tape. You, you don't even hear it. And then you look at it seriously for a minute and you realize, God, there's a lot there. So in every one of them, it seems to me the effect is um, to take mystery away and miracles, to leave us thinking we're in control of everything here when if Christ had given in, um, we would have been, we will, we will have been giving in to Satan all the time, whether we knew it or not. And remember, I used this word before, God, sorry. Um, uh, theosis, it's the term the Greek fathers used in the early church to describe um, what they saw so deeply. They, God, Osis, moving towards. Um, their way of putting it was God took on the nature of man so that man could take on the nature of God. Theosis, it's this process of human beings um, taking on a divine quality. And if, I mean, I, you know, I've asked you to take a look take a look at this in a variety of contexts. One of the most important is that question that I keep putting, are our are, are beginnings high or low? You know, were the beginnings of the ancient world high or low? Are the beginnings for us high or low? They're really low for our world. The, the pre-Christian world, pagan world, had a, a nobler sense of our humanity than the modern scientific world. The modern scientific world is, for the most part, we're product of these forces over which we have no control. We don't have free will. Um, theosis um, hold, implies this great dignity to man that with Christ's help we're invited to share a divine life with him. That's, I think that's why the sacraments are so important because it's through them that our, our lives... There's lots we can do to help ourselves but there are things we cannot do without his help and the sacraments our belief is the means by which he does that. So, um, so we looked at the temptations um, this week. I want to just very, very briefly try to put a whole together because you know that my, I mean, the, one of the suggestions I've been making all along is that we have to grasp holes better than we do because our tendency is to see in parts. So remember, almost every good work Certainly, a drama and a and a novel, a narrative like the epic. Almost every great work opens in medias race, in the middle of a problem. Yeah, something's wrong. The Iliad, this Moby Dick, um, Finn. It doesn't matter. Every good work opens with um, a problem. This is a problem people have not been aware of, and something happens to make them aware of it. So there's an opening problem. It's usually followed by a complication. I'm not going to break it down here. Just 
but it's usually followed by a complication. Every good Shakespeare play has that. This has it too. It'll move towards a crisis. Whatever the problem was will reach a peak. It'll, something will happen. It's like a boil festering. And it'll be followed by a denouement, an unraveling, a settling in, and finally a resolution. Even in a tragedy, and I, I, I made this claim countless times, every tragedy, every good tragedy implies a good. It's not a bad thing. Some evil, some injustice, some disorder, some wrong has taken place that's affecting those involved. And the action addresses that disorder and um, answers it. So what it does is clear the ground for a new founding, a refounding. So every tragedy is good, implies a good. Um, so that's the, those are the stages of progress. We could apply them here. I don't want to break it down that way. But what I wanted to do this morning was, um, was just su suggest in an outline form some things to be aware of. The opening problem that are, are, we've already seen is this influence, this influx of influences from the West. It's unsettled everybody. And it's producing this crisis of faith that's at the center of this work. That's the opening problem. It reaches its first crisis, um, let's see, how do I have this? Reaches its first crisis um, um, yeah, the, it, there's actually a number, but it reaches its first crisis um, with um, Alyosha undergoing a trial of faith when everybody at the monastery thinks that um, Zosimam was evil, that the stench that his body gives off when he's dead is a sign, evidence, that he was not as good as people thought. And it so unsettles Alyosha that he has that crisis. We'll look at it briefly today. So that's the first crisis. The other one is um, the murder. Um, so this is Alyosha's crisis, this crisis. The other one is the a murder of Theodore. And it leads to Demetrius's crisis because you know that during that whole section dealing with Dimitri, um, the question that's raised for everybody is, did he do it? All the evidence suggests that he does. And he, he goes and meets with Grushenka, and you, you know that the police come in and accuse him and have that long interrogation. So it's an intense, so there are intense crises for each of the sons, Alyosha, Dmitri, and then the last one involves Ivan when he meets with um, Smerdyakov, and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away. He has to deal with some questions that uh, absolutely unsettle him. So it's really important that everybody read those sections closely, particularly the last one, because what happens up to this time? Almost everything that happens up to this, the point of these crises for the story, is relatively innocent. We know about evil. We know about bad things. There's a trial of faith going on. From this point on, everything darkens. It gets sinister. And I'm understating that. Demons, you know, when after the Grand Inquisitor, when we see Lisi, she says to uh, Alyosha, I'm glad I broke off. If you read that scene, you know that it's on the surface, it seems innocent. She's just a young woman who's unsettled. 
when the scene closes, he leaves, she puts her finger in the door and slams it, crushes her finger. <coughs> she goes, mean, 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 mean. She reminds me of young women who do cuttings. You know, if you live in a world, I, this is so important, I think, for us. If you live in a world, I think young women are more given to emotions than men, generally. If you're a young woman, or even a man, but here in this case a woman, if you're a young woman raised in a culture that makes no place for sin, what do you do with those things inside of yourself that make you ashamed? How do you deal with them? You know, nobody's around to correct you. Everything in our world is okay. What do you do with those disorders? I mean, she, she, wants, she, she wants to hurt herself because she feels so unworthy. If you're in a culture in which you deny sin, how do you handle it when it comes? So that's an innocent passage, and it's going to be followed by these meetings between Shmirjikov and Ivan, and the chapter following those meetings deals directly with a demon. An actual demon comes into the work, and I don't think we've read a work together in which that happens. So this trial of faith, if you watch the whole novel, you can see um, Dostoevsky sort of setting things up, moving towards a crisis. And what we're going to discover in this trial of faith is that people are going to have to encounter themselves and really dark forces. Um, and, and often, I've said this before, the carnival aspect, remember that I've talked about this upside down? All the functionaries, these people who, who've been educated by the West, come into this Holy Mother Russia, and they think they're the ones who have the answers. They're the ones in charge, the doctors, the lawyers, the commissioners. I mean, there, there's a whole range of these functionaries, these civil servants. And over and over and over and over again, they get it wrong. They're the ones who are least capable of seeing, and they're the ones who, who pride themselves most on seeing. What we're learning in all of this, in this tension, this conflict, is the only, because we, we've been talking about being bad readers, that we don't read well. As you know that I sit on that, it's just, I, I think we don't question enough, we don't wonder enough, we think we have the answers. The only people who see well in this book are Zasima and Alyosha. And if we see that, if we recognize that, it seems to me um, it's, it's, it's hard not to ask this question, can people see well if they don't love? If there's something in the way of in, in the way of loving, if there's something disordered or wrong in the way they love, it will affect their intellect the way they see. So these are some of the major concerns, and I wanted to put out that hole just to give you because we're going forward really quickly. And there's a lot to deal with. I want to go over some of the scenes. Remember, it opened with the narrator introducing the family to us and and all the ways in which the father was not present um, in the family, um, involved with women, um, what he did with his second wife um, was awful, and the kids loved her, the boys loved her. Um, we go from the opening on the family to the monastery in which we see the men and the women as groups. So dif sexual differences stand out. The women are more likely to be, be stronger in faith um, and remember the last one we looked at was she was undergoing a crisis herself, but it was largely an intellectual in character. She was like the men. 
and the men are far given far more given to intellectual arguments. They're in their heads, structures in their minds. Uh, we went from there to that scene where Dimitri met Alyosha, and it was that scene um, in, in which Dimitri said he was a bug, an insect, that he was the lowest of creatures, and he, he told the story of what happened between him and Katrina. Remember that um, she, she was at a helpless place because of what was going on with her father, and Dimitri could help her out, and um, he did, but he knew that if he returned to her, she would treat him like a dog. And what we discover is both of them, Katrina and Dimitri, are, are intensely proud. Um, then there's that meeting um, at Fyodor's with Grigri, um, Smirjikov and Ivan. And remember, Smirjikov was toying with Grigri, who was a peasant. He was using his intellect. And he was basically making the argument that if you really had faith, you could move a mountain. But nobody has faith like that. And so he's saying it wasn't real, and he could um, he could disbelieve in it, and if he ever repented, he could be saved. All he's doing is toying with Grigory's mind because Grigory is helpless to answer. He doesn't have the intellectual capabilities, so um, um, it's just he's it's like a human playing with a cat. He, he's just mean, you know, Smirjikov. And um, Dmitri breaks in and um, beats his father and takes off. Um, that chapter ends with Ivan saying, Viper will eat Viper because he's watching his family fall apart. In the very next scene, we, to the, we watch the women, and what we're seeing is Viper eating Viper because both of the women are Vipers, I mean, deeply. Katrina presents herself as being sweet and um, sociable, nice. She brings out Grushenka, remember, Ali, and she says, um, she's so sweet. Um, she's gonna um, she's gonna break off from Dimitri, so Katrina and Katrina thinks she will have Dimitri to herself, <coughs> and she takes Grushenka's hand and kisses it. Remember, and then Grushenka starts to reach out for Katrina's hand as if she's gonna kiss it, and then pulls back. She's doing with her what Eva or Smirjikov did with Grigory. She's playing with her, and being as proud as she is, Katrina just blows it. I mean, she becomes hysterical. Um, this whore, this witch, this, you know, she wants to tear her eyes out. So we're watching both women use each other. Krushina, or Grushenka makes that clear. Everything that Katrina had done, even though she appears to be nice outwardly, is insidious. She's, she's been using her. Um, Grushenka does the same. And Grushenka at that point says, um, She'd been using Dimitri all this time, too, because she's got other things on her mind that we'll learn about shortly. It's the soldier that's going to come for her. Um, Alyosha returns to the monastery, and that's where we see Fairpont talking about all the demons, you know, behind the door on everybody's stomach, and these holy priests um, don't see them, which is a sign of how unholy they are. And then Alyosha gets involved with those schoolboys when he leaves, and you remember that there's this one schoolboy who's throwing stones at him and he can't figure out why. And he learns it's because this young boy's father had been humiliated by Dmitri, and he's angry at the Karamazov family. And Alyosha will learn that. He'll go back to Katrina, and Katrina will offer him money to give the family, because it's her way of supporting Dmitri, um, whom she thinks she loves. He tries giving the money to the 
father, and the father is overjoyed because it would get them out of debt, and then he realizes it would be a dishonor to do that, and his son would be ashamed of him. So he goes back, and, and in all these scenes, we're watching people, there's no other word. It, it's one aspect of manipian satire is the grotesque. Remember when we did Flannery O'Connor, the grotesque is when good and evil meet its I don't probably will laugh at this. Whenever, what do you call that FaceTime on the phone? I always laugh when I see that, but when you see the faces on FaceTime, they're always so distorted. I think it's a wonderful image of the grotesque. You know, we just we, we may think we have these good looking faces and you look at FaceTime and <laughs> I think it's a selfie. It's a I think sorry? It's a selfie. Yeah. Images of themselves, you know. Well, they're partly distorted. That's what I, that's what I, there's a sort of varied element. Here's, I mean, this is sort of, here's this wonderful piece of technology and people, I think particularly in families, mothers and wives are quick to go, oh, look at the children. And I, whenever I go on FaceTime and I see those images, I think, oh, God, that is not what my grandson looks like. Or, you know, I mean, we're also, it's just comic because it, in one sense, it sort of reminds us that we're, we're not as good looking as, we may think we are, whatever, whatever goes on with us. Anyway, um, where was I? Sorry, God. Oh, they're all, they're all, it's almost impossible to encounter anybody in this book without being aware at some point that we're in the presence of the grotesque. Something strange and twisted is happening. Sometimes it's below the surface, but it will come out. So this social conventional world that everything's okay is being disturbed, violated. It's cracking. And it's going to lead to these scenes here where the demonic is going to surface. We're going to see that there was something here all along um, that we didn't see. Um, oh, and, and then finally, um, before we get to the Grand Inquisitor, it was um, Alyosha meets with Lisi and the two, I, I, I offered this reading of it, that the two learned to put these social conventions away. She, she had a hard time admitting that she was sincere in her letter, declaring her love, because it would leave her vulnerable. She's a proud woman, she didn't want to do it. Alyosha knows that she and Manity says that to her, and for a moment the two get past appearances, and they're openly vulnerable to each other, and they, they vow to get married. So they're betrothed at that point. That betrothal will, that vow or the, the commitment to be married will get broken when we come back after the Grand Inquisitor. She'll say she's breaking it off and glad to do it. And, and then we're into the second half of the book where things begin to darken. Um, let me stop here. I'm, um, I want to go to the Zosima story, but, but I asked you this question, I'm glad. Glad somebody's got a memory I've forgotten, but one of the, I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I'd be glad to do it. One of the interesting things about the Grand Inquisitor is that Dost, how much if Ivan is a spokesman for Dostoevsky, it's a problem. He's not Dostoevsky, but he's raising questions about the temptations, and through the whole thing, he's very critical of the Catholic Church in, in numerous passages. He, he's critical of Luther, he's critical of Calvin, the Geneva experience. And he's openly critical, and he, he makes a couple of explicit statements that when um, Pippin, King Pippin, gave the, the northern lands to the Pope, what it, I mean, we've gone through the struggles between church and state. I, wanna, I don't want to revisit them right now, but you know that 
the whole Middle Ages is a sorting out of church and state, the different authorities and the sovereignty each one has in his own realm, Caesar in his realm, Christ. Um, there's that um, time when Pippin gives the Pope the, the states that politicizes his office. The, the, those went on to become the papal states. Um, and, and Yvonne refers to them as, as evidence that, that um, the papacy, the church, the Catholic church, um, has, has been fully assimilated into the state, that it has state powers. So it's corrupt. But I ask this question, you know, what, why, what, what's Dostoevsky's, what's behind this distrust of the Catholic Church and even really open criticism? And I know you, you had an answer. Have you? I'll just see somebody else wanted to go first. Does anybody have a response to that? Pretty serious criticism of the Catholic Church. I've got some thoughts on it, but they're speculative character, but any? Somebody in the evening <coughs> class said, with a, in, a, in a sense of um, supporting what I think is a common criticism of the Catholic Church, that it has all these rules and regulations you know, that seem to take on a state power that you have to do this, 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 and so it seems authoritarian and state-like, status-like, but, but go well, ahead. I, I may be making more out of it than it, it is, but I, I guess I found the question kind of insightful because what I think is going on, and if you look at what happens when Zosimo dies and, and the Zosimo story and Zosimo wanting Alicia to get out, from the monastery out into the people. Mm -hmm. To me, I think Dostoevsky is saying, Where, where's the Catholic Church? I mean, you've got this great disruption taking place in Russia, and where's the Catholic Church standing up to help the people, the common people, all the people, find a way out of this disruption? And I, I think he's being critical that, you know, when the people need it most, the church is missing in action. It's really interesting. And you can kind of go back, and we talked about it in, during the Snopes trial. I think you asked the question, and I think it was in the town, and you asked the question, would it make a difference if the Catholic Church had been there? And I mean, you can make an argument today, even. I mean, here we are, we've got COVID-19, a <laughs> pandemic. Has anyone seen the Catholic Church come out and kind of help the people? It, with their faith. He's taken a couple of stands. He's done, I can't remember. But, 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 you know, but, but, yeah, but he's, a, he's one person in the whole church. Yeah. And I mean, he said a few things. But so, I mean, I think you can kind of, you know, look today and you can look back in history and every once in a while the church is a little MIA. And I think that's what missing an action. Missing, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's what he's pointing out. I mean, if you look at, if you look at all those people in the monastery, and, and I think, didn't we talk earlier about the worst are here? The, Zosimo saying that. Yeah, yeah. The, the worst people are here. Well, I think we saw that in spades. And he's telling Alicia, get out of here. I mean, you, you've got your mind in the right place. Get out of here and go make a difference with the people. Wow, I need to... But anyway, in. I may have... Yeah, no, 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 no. I may be making more of it no, than it was, no, 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 but it just no, kind of no, made no, me think. No, no, no. Wouldn't the... I mean, the split between the Orthodox <clears throat> and the Catholic Church was not small. I mean, it, it, um, the Orthodox people hate the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, I mean, 
Robert was Be raised. honest now. If, if, if I have a sense of where you're going, but be <coughs> honest, go ahead. I, I don't know. Where oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I remember your response to the, um, who was the Greek? Oh, yeah, I, that's where I was going. Yeah. Was that I was just, as a Catholic, who was married to somebody who was born and raised Greek, Greek Orthodox, when the Pope, when John Paul uh -huh. went to Greece, yeah. I was absolutely appalled and deeply shamed. Wow. By the way, the Orthodox yeah. people, not the Archbishop. I mean, what's the, the, what's Arch the name? The, I'm missing the the title, but um, I mean, the Church was on the surface civil, but the people um, they hated the Catholic Church, and they hated John Paul. How could you hate John Paul? Yeah. Um, of all of all the popes, right? right. Um, so I don't think I, I don't I think. You want some more coffee? <laughs> Um, I don't think that it's just that the Catholic Church was missing. I don't think the Russians would have accepted the Catholic Church mm -hmm. coming in. Uh, Fred, I've got a, I've got a, I'm so glad you said that. Um, Go ahead and beat me up. <laughs> why do you get so negative about things? I'm actually supporting you. God, take that guy home. Do something with him, would you? God. God. I'm always grateful. Well, no, most of the time, grateful. For the <laughs> I only had to say that because uh, you know what it says. Cool. Go ahead, yeah. Even though the church could come out with all kinds of edicts and all that stuff, the church is only as good as its people are willing to put things in action. And so, even if the church had come out and done all the right things. It's like, even now, the church is saying abortion is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Get your act together, get to church, start acting like you're Christian and Catholic. Mm -hmm. And unless we have individuals who take that and do it, yeah. it's not. Yeah, it and lots of people don't. I, here, I want to go back to, um, oh boy, this is going to be hard how to do this. Um, first, because I don't want to forget this, when Zosima says we're the worst of the worst, that wasn't a criticism. It was an affirmation of a sinfulness and his belief that um, none of the monks could do their job unless they began with a sense of their own sins. He said, he said, he started by saying, I'm the worst of the worst. And if those of you who are here have not come to that, you don't belong here. What he's saying is, you can't do your job if you don't see what a sinner you are, because you'll lord it, you'll be able to, you know. But with respect to this question of the Catholic Church, let me offer a couple of thoughts, and it's interesting. I want to pick yours, because I've, one of my criticisms of Russia, and I, I think it's, this is speculative, okay? I'm, this is trying to put things together loosely, but um, they became communistic completely. And one of, my, one of my criticisms of the East from the beginning, this is a terrible generalization, but it, but it serves as a generalization because I'm you know, covering centuries and centuries sure. of history. If you look at the church's struggles, most of the heresies came from the East, and they are always otherworldly. The, um, the Aryan, the monophysite, or I can't remember, you know, the monarchalism, that they were always trying to protect the sovereignty of God because they saw dangers in, in making, say, making Christ a God. Seem to take away from the divinity of God, the sovereignty of God. It's like Calvin, 
exactly the same problem. There's been an otherworldly spirit to the East from the beginning. And one of the questions I had over its history, particularly in the years leading up to communism, coming right out of this, is where was the Orthodox Church? And it's a serious question. I mean, it's, it's not quite where Suzanne was going, but it's a serious question in my mind. When you have, I was raised in the Orthodox Church, one of the, one of the qualities, I didn't, until I came to UD, I just, because there was a tear in my heart that whole time. In the Orthodox Church, when we, after we got married, we returned to Orthodoxy, even though I, you know, it was already, this is too personal, but I, I knew I was going to convert. It just took a while to get there. But in my heart of hearts, I knew. I, it was so hard to make that move because to make it meant living my family, my culture, my, you know. Not living, leaving. Um, when we went, when we came back to the church, I was far more aware of something than I was as a kid. When we went back to the church, because there was no way I was not going to take communion. Almost nobody in the church took communion. Every weekend we would go up with our kids and maybe one of the two yayas. The rest of the church did not because their feeling was unless they did all this fasting, unless they all did this stuff, you know, preparate, they would not receive. So they put this holiness at a distance. Nobody's participating. And that, that's a concrete example of something. But my question during that whole time leading up, to, leading up to communism, because the church got buried then, it didn't in Poland, and it was a Catholic church. Where was the Orthodox Church resisting this political stuff, this intellectual stuff? It was, in my mind, it was not incarnated enough in this world. Go to Poland, a Catholic country, you go to war. So one of the, one of the questions that I have is that you know from, from we, when we did the church history thing, from 330 when Constantine moved the capital to Constantinople from Rome, there are these tensions between the Latin Greek cultures. And they just intensify. Boethius's death is one of the costs of that tension. He shouldn't have been executed. There were all these intrigues, intrigues going on. They didn't stop. All they did was intensify till the 11th century, 1054, when the Orthodox Church separates. They say over the filioque, but there are centuries of political tensions, you know, between East and West. And my one of my concerns, this is, sorry, I should, should stop, but we had a meeting, of, um, a luncheon one day at Magdalen when, when I was co-tutoring there and we were talking about something in our, and suddenly I was blown away by an insight I had. In the Filioque, the Greek church does not say, the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox does not say, um, Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father from and the Son. The Son, through the Son. So it doesn't include both. That to me is heretical. And I want to get to it. I mean, I want to leave the theological problem for a second. But it's saying, it, it's one thing it's saying is, there are two sons. And there can't be. If, if, the, if, if the spirit proceeds from the father, then he has the same role, he should, because it's a direct, because the, the traditional understanding had always been is that he proceeds through the father and the son, because it's the union of the father and son that produces the spirit, the love. So that in itself, theologically, I mean, has never made sense to me. But the important thing, thought that I had then it was stunning to me. If you take Christ out of, are you all following the theology, the proceeding, yeah. the procession of the Son and Spirit from the <coughs> Father, the Son processes, he's, 
he's begotten by um, the, the, the Father, so he's consubstantial, one with him. It's one God. We've gone through this a lot. The Spirit is, is, is the product of the union between the two. If you leave the Son out of that procession, you take away what will be the incarnate influence in the world. If you look at Eastern art, it's all trapped in the past. It's all aniconic. It's geometric. It's platonic. I'm hoping you're trusting. If you look at an art, you know what I'm talking about. A, a iconic. It's it's not naturalistic, because they this otherworldly aspect. They believe that to come into the world keeps you in sin. That the whole function of art for the Eastern world is contemplative. It's to take you beyond the world. It's platonic, into the geometric forms, to get away from this naturalistic world. Walk into an Orthodox church, and you you know what I'm talking about. This the iconic art. It's geometric. It's platonic. You know what I mean by platonic? Because Plato said the math forms get you closer. You have to abstract from this world. The Western art, particularly from the Renaissance on, and Giotto was the first one who introduced perspective into the world. Even though it was medieval art, you suddenly see time entering the world and naturalism. And the great danger of the church, because the church can become over, over the iconic, you know, the iconoclastic problems, the church can be overcome by naturalism. The great grace of the Western Church, to my mind, in that moment that I had, was that it shows the Spirit working in time, that we're not caught in the past. So my question is, where was the Orthodox Church when, when state powers were beginning to develop and take over? Because they were forced underground, under communism. You couldn't practice your religion. Where was the battle? That wouldn't have happened in Poland. You know, it didn't happen in France in the war. I mean, anyway, that's a sorry. That's a much larger. I'm sorry for <coughs> taking the time, but I just think there's lots going on. And one of the interesting things for me from this book, out of my head, one of the interesting things for me is you read this book, you know that the tradition of the elders is fading. The elders are not priests. They can't. They can't give sacraments. So we're looking at a holy order that's not ordained. Zosima hears confessions. We don't see him giving communion. It's talked about. What we're aware of is that there's, there's this tradition of holiness, but it's fading. The whole book makes that clear. So there are these monks living their private life, off in a monastery. They're not in the world because what they're doing is protecting themselves from the world. Fasting, praying, that's what they're doing. They're not actively engaged in the world. The sacraments are not a part of their life, and it's fading. Where's the church taking up that slack to deal with the political world? It goes underground. And we're watching the Nostosti. It's almost Protestant. There are no sacraments. It's holiness, but it's a holiness associated with a sequestered, cloistered life. And when I think when Zosima is sending Alyosha out of the world, I don't think it's he's... I mean, I don't get a sense it's because he knows the monastery is corrupt. It's that he, he, this may be Dostoevsky, he believes it's important for people who are holy to get out on the world and influence something. And the, the really interesting thing is that will be affirmed at the end of the novel because Alyosha is going to be directly involved with kids, trying to help them hold on to something. It's as if the older generation, the, you know, old Fyodor and... Okay. 
has lost and the hope is in kids and bringing up a young generation but the church is not there it's a kid young man sorry young man who's been mentored by a holy man they're the two people but in some sense the church is not there and what's interesting to me is the ortho it's like the protestant world each church is autonomous there's no unity between them so there's not a sense of a unity that i think a catholic world should have you know whether we're in italy or america or germany we those of us who share the faith are tied with everybody in the world. There's a kind of autonomy. You know, it's left to these little communities like Alyosha with the kids. and um, So that's a, to me, it's just a very, I, I, I offer that speculatively. But that's just my, my, my ramblings on, you know, a question that I've had for years. It's just my sense because, I mean, the people really needed help. And not yes. intellectual help. Yes. Faith help. Yes. And I think if you look at Zosima's life, I mean, he had learned that lesson and he sent Alicia out to do what yep. what needed to be done. Yep. yep. So I, I, I now confess I think he is the hero of the story. Alicia? Yeah. Yeah. Let's wait on that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Can we, any, I'll give a couple more minutes for anybody who wants to comment on this. Barbara, you sh or Debbie, you're shaking your head. No, I'm good. <laughs> You're not good. Who told you that lie? <laughs> Somebody stop me. This is Lent. I should stop. And one of the things I should give up for Lent, my wife is giving me a serious look right now. <laughs> Let's go to the... Does everybody... You, anybody want to comment just briefly? Before? <clears throat> no, I really appreciate you saying something because it makes it, uh, it's, a, it's, uh, it's putting words to a, a thing that's in all of us. But I'm uh, just thinking of, you know, what you taught us about Shakespeare. And, and it's like, um, there's no way, we don't have access to this unless we're reading like this. You know? And it's like, um, it's like, uh, where was I? I mean, I, did, I never read this literature mm -hmm. before. Yeah. I've read other things, but not yeah. at this depth. And I'm just struck by you know, the I hold right now. <clears throat> I remember when, when we talked about this last week, the, the whole area, the window to Russia. And it's like, shouldn't foreign policy be based on understanding the Russian people Culture. through the eyes of this novel? Oh, because yeah. when Kennedy and the Russians were, uh, the, the Cuban Missile Project, mm -hmm. Kennedy was sent by someone, uh, Russian literature, and he read the Russian literature. Oh, he did? He did. I didn't know that. In order to intervene with uh, Gorbachev. Was it Gorbachev? And it was just Khrushchev. 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 Yeah, Khrushchev, right. So they said, it's like, if you don't have some bridge into that world, you're not going to handle it correctly. And it's like, you have to have a feeling, perhaps, before an understanding. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know. Not even sure it would have changed anything, but I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the, one of the, one of the alarming things that... <laughs> well, that's ironic. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. This is our moment. <laughs> Let's all ascend together. <laughs> I'm glad those weren't dark bills. <laughs> One of the alarming things that 
took root in my soul. I mean, I think it had always been there, but I not quite understood it in that moment at Magdalene was, you know how much I love art. I mean, all of you, all of you do. One of my great griefs for the Catholic Church right now, I, I can't be more serious. I cannot be more serious. One of the great strengths of the Catholic Church comes through its art. Music, it's literature, all of it, all of it. It's, in, it's an incarnated world. I take that with absolute seriousness. It won't be as much in the Protestant world. It, can't, it never can be, will be. We're incarnational. All of our senses are involved. Music, art, painting, sculpture, you name it. It's our, it's our fleshly world. Um, it, ha it has its greatest health in the sacraments, wherever the sacraments are vital. You know? and, we, and we're learning that half the Catholic world doesn't believe in the sacraments anymore. You know, they're participating in the Mass, but... The Church needs art. It can't fulfill itself without it. It can't take us to the world. So I think the Church is hurting right now, and one of my serious questions is, where are the Catholic artists? I'm saying this really seriously. If you go back to the first half of the century, you can find lots of them. Catherine Ann Porter, Eudora Welty, Hemingway, you can go on and on. E even if they were rebels and not complete, Hemingway was a Catholic, he took his life. Um, lots of great artists. Where are they now? The poets, the novelists, the dramatists, the, the, the music. One of the most alarming things for me is to walk into a church and feel like I'm in a traditional world where the spirit is not present. What is the spirit doing today? Where is he at work with artists? Creating an art that helps us enter into the modern world in our Catholic faith. That's a serious problem for me. It's not happening. And I think the church is suffering because of it. So one of my concerns then is the, the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox world stays in the past. Its art is geometric. It's an iconic. It's it's meant to take us to the next world, not allow us here. The great works that we've been working are certainly my present, is that we're watching the spirit work in this world. Portia, Helena, you know, we can go on and on and on. I mean, I can't, nothing, I mean, Alyosha or, or um, um, Ishmael. We're watching the spirit answer serious disorders in the world to help us in our struggles to do something in the world. Take that away? Go into an Eastern world? You know, where you're in holiness, but the struggle of incarnating and fleshing Christ? Undermine. So one of my great concerns, you know that from, is trying to recover a tradition. And I, well, that's one of the reasons I want to get it online, because my concern right now is for young. Um, don't take this personally. I, I, I watch what's happening to young people. It's like Alyosha. It just terrifies me. They're all being raised under Darwin and Freud and no God and ideologies and political agendas. But carrying a tradition, having some means of answering an inspiration in themselves, they don't have. Take, this, take the tradition away from Shakespeare. Could he have done what he did? Take the tradition away from Dante. Could he have done what he did? Absolutely not. They weren't arrested in their traditions, but they carried that tradition. That tradition made it possible for them to do something new in the world when they lived. My concern is, is that going on today in our church? And my answer to that right now is, I hate to say this, sadly, no. Sorry. I'm just going to say this book is so depressing, this is a great day to read it. 
You mean because that's about the outside? Yeah. <laughs> All the stuff going on in the club. Shemeski is such a depressed person. He's not a depressed person, Lenny. He's a very hopeful person. Wait till we get... No, yeah. but the, he, no, he's not. He's not. A, he, he's a person. But by the way, that's one of my definitions of realism. People who are sentimentalized will live in a la-la world. Dostoevsky is absolutely truthful in what he represents everywhere. He doesn't back off of anything. He shows things as they are, and he has the courage to do that, and stage by stage by stage, open that world to show us the dark things. And he won't do that unless he can answer them, and he does. So, anyway, let's, sorry, let's go to the... I made that longer than you meant to be, I'm sure. <laughs> it was important. Was it? I don't know. It just, yes, but it, it was. Yeah. Yes, it makes me nervous. It really leaves me shaking. Yeah, we do. Um, I love our church. Um, it's an extraordinary gift. Right now, it, it needs help um, from artists. And artists need our church. God. Okay. The Zosima story. Remember before we get to the Zosima story that Ivan was on his way to um, Shirmashnya and he had this exchange with Smerdyakov. Ivan was on his way in. And um, it's a puzzling chapter because you can't read it without being aware that everything Smerdyakov says implies that he and Ivan are in league on something. It's insinuated. It, there's nothing explicit, nowhere. So you can read through it and think, why did he put the chapter there? It'll become clear later. But it's, the beauty of it is, I mean, Linda partly goes to your comment, the beauty of it is that on the surface, nothing's going on. You know, it seems, nothing, really, nothing's going on. And yet we learn later that, uh, I, there's no way to, a ton, I'm not exaggerating, levels and levels of levels of intellectual meeting we're going on there. In fact, I'm going to say this. It'll become clear later when Ivan and Smirjikov meet. I'm going to make a claim here to, that there's no way to have done justice to that scene if you didn't properly value angelic knowledge. That because Lucifer was the brightest of the angels and he turned the difference between Lucifer intellectually and between a man is the difference between a rookie who thinks he can manage and a hundred-year veteran. I mean, for, if anybody had the hubris, the cavalier arrogance to think that he could temptate Satan or match him or deal with him, he'd be out of his mind. Because when you, when you go on to these other chapters, you're watching um, Smirjikov go through item by item by item by item with his mind and answer all these things. And there's no way you could have anticipated all of them because the depths are too great. So that chapter with, with uh, Smirjikov is really important. I'm just saying that. Think about it before you go on. But I want to It's probably the only character that Smirjikov could have pulled that off with. Go ahead, why? Because he's all in his head. Yeah, that's right. Okay, Zosima, 285. I'm going to do this really quickly. Um, 
You remember, this is back on page 163, you don't have to go there, but it's on page 163 and 4. When we go to the, back to the monastery, we get this story of a Fairpont, father, he's a priest, Father Fairpont, what they call the hierobe monk. A hierobe monk needs a priest. It's, a priest is different from a monk, so. And it's in that scene that Zosimov said, I am the worst of the worst. And it's his belief that um, unless the monks share that feeling, they shouldn't be there be because they won't be able to do their task. Um, here we're going back to Zosima. Um, and he, he tells, um, he, he lets um, Alyosha know that one of the reasons he bowed down to Dimitri is because he knew in that monastery scene that Dimitri would, um, would be facing <coughs> Um, a great crisis in his life. So it's just another indication of something prophetic in Zosima, that he seems to see things other people don't. And, and the people hate him for it, the monks, um, because they like to think, because, and some of them, because they're priests, like to think they're better mm -hmm. than he is, and it's Zosima who's performing all these extraordinary things. Remember the miracle, he, because he said to the woman that her son would be returned, and he wasn't. Um, on page... 288, um, remember now, all of this is, pre is presented to the narrator from Alyosha who had written it all down. So this is a document the narrator received of Alyosha trying to hold in memory this man that he loves, all that Zosima did. So um, in 288, remember that um, the story begins with Zosima recalling um, the death of his older brother, um, Markel, um, who grew up an atheist, who did not believe in God. And then when he got sick and was close to his death, he had a conversion, and the, the conversion was complete. I mean, he absolutely loved God. He said everything, everything he experienced was a source of pleasure and happiness, and he wanted his brother to have that, so he passed it on to Alyosha. And um, one of the reasons Zosimov loves Alyosha, he's making this clear to all the monks why he has this attachment to this young kid, <coughs> is because he so reminds him of his own brother, the brother that died, that, that really passed on this calling to him, you know, to carry, out, carry on this love. So we get on page 293, Zosima's life. I, I'm just going to, um, I, I wish we could read more, but just for example, go to 294. He repeatedly gives that example, unless a corn falls to the ground, that unless we die, we won't bear fruit. Unless we give ourselves up, unless we do something to put ourselves away, we will never be able to do it. This is Achilles. It's, it's beyond Achilles, but it's, the seed of it is there. 294, or should you forget the parables of the Lord? Because he's telling all of the monks, read the Bible. And he's even listing the stories. Um, saying, be sure you read all these things. Here he says, or should forget the parables of the Lord, chosen mainly from the Gospel of Luke. That is what I did. And then Saul's conversion from Acts, that is a must, a must. And finally, also from the lives of the saints. So he's saying, it's like a catechism in, for a priest. It's like seminary. You have to, because there's no formal seminary, you have to do these things. Whoever does not believe in God will not believe in the people of God, but he who believes in the people of God will also see their holiness, even if he did not believe in it at all. Only the people in the future spiritual power 
will convert our atheists who have severed themselves from their own land. So here's the crux of the crisis. This large group of people under the influence of the West who are becoming atheists, turning away from the faith, and it's threatening the Russian people. Um, he describes the travels that he and Father Anth have taken and their encounter with this young man. <clears throat> Go to the bottom of 294. And only the two of us, myself and this young man, were still awake and we got to talking about the beauty of this world of God's and about its great mystery. For each blade of grass, each little bug, ant, golden bee, knows its way amazingly. Being without reason, they witness to the divine mystery. They ceaselessly enact it. This is like Hopkins. Everything in nature speaks. Everything in nature gives off this beauty and order, speaks. They ceaselessly enact it. And I could see that the good lad's heart was burning. He told me how he loved the forest, the forest birds. He was a bird catcher. He knew their very call and could lure any bird. I don't know of anything better than the forest, he said. Though all things are good, truly I answered him, all things are good and splendid because all is truth. So both of them, um, I think it's a moment of communion and with God, um, take a joy in everything around them. In this depressing book, <laughs> they're finding, they're, but by the way, just on Linda's behalf, be a, I mean, nobody can read this. Are, are the rest of the people like this? No, because the rest of the people live in this dark, depressing world. <laughs> but obviously these two people stand out. There's something that they're seeing that other people don't. Um, um, you know what happens when he enters the military. He is infatuated with this woman. He thinks she loves him. He leaves for a while, and when he returns, he finds out she's married. He's um, humiliated because he thinks everybody sees he was used by her. He's so infuriated, he goes to the man that she marries and challenges him to a duel um, because he's been insulted. You know the story. They got for the duel. Um, the day before, he slaps his servant. It's a, I'm going to skip it, but he slaps his servant. He is so humiliated. That's a, Christ, that's a moment of grace. He's so humiliated by the moment to think that he could treat another human being that way. He goes down to the feet of his servant and asks pardon. The servant is so humiliated by Zosima doing that that he bows down. I mean, there, it's this wonderful sharing that, that we're the worst of the worst, that they... They should serve other people, that there shouldn't be this class distinction where you look down on a group of people. Um, so he carries that into the duel the next day. It's a change of heart that's taken place. And you know that he lets the guy shoot, and then after the guy shoots, he throws his gun away without fire. His regiment is humiliated because their response is, as a soldier, because soldiers will look at things this way, he should have fired because not to was an indication of his cowardice. So they all misread him, completely misread him. And eventually, one of them says, but he threw the, or he let the guy take the shot. So he's showing that, and this had to be Zosima's motive. Because if he hadn't let him, he would, he would have been seen as a coward. And people begin to see that, and slowly this opinion turns to support him. And the women in town, when they hear it, are, you can imagine, infatuated, because here are men these soldiers whose lives they look up to, these are men who are going to protect them, these are men. 
and they see what this guy did, and everybody's taken by it. And it's like a, a cultural change in this small group that they're learning to see something because of what he did already. Um, word gets around, and then um, at one point, he's visited by what's called a stranger. This guy keeps showing up at his door and wanting to talk with him. And I want to look at this. Um, um, 303. This man is so taken by what Al Zosim did that somebody would have had the courage to put his life on the line at the risk of his honor, at the risk of being humiliated. Um, he admires the courage that Zosim showed, and he, and he visits him and says, Top of 303. Paradise, he said, is hidden in each of us. It's concealed within me, too, right now. Notice concealed. And if I wish it will come for me in reality, tomorrow even, or for the rest of my life, you know what happens. But it's interesting the way that he presents this. It's in him. He absolutely believes it, that paradise is there. But he's not done something. And what we learn as we go through all of his visits is that he, um, he finally confesses it um, on page three or four at the bottom. What's the matter? Zosima says, are you ill? He'd been complaining precisely of a headache. I, do you know, I killed a person. He said it and smiled, and his face was as white as chalk. Why is he smiling? The thought suddenly pierced my heart. Even before I'd understood anything, I turned pale myself. He tells the story of falling in love with this woman and um, feeling rejected, and then going and sneaking into her bedroom one night and stabbing her, killing her. The next day they find the serf, peasant again, because here's this class prejudice that they find the serf drunk and with blood on his sleeve. Now, I want everybody to, don't, don't overlook the obvious, because the obvious is, you know, we come to conclusions so fast. Everybody comes to a conclusion. It's evidence making it clear that he killed, so that's the assumption they, they are, are accusing him of the murder. He gets sick and a few days later he dies. So this man has gone on, if I remember, it's for 14 years, with the guilt of having killed this woman, and he's coming to Alyosha because Alyosha, or sorry, Zosima, had this courage to take a shot and not return it. Um, he keeps visiting him, and at some point after he, his confession, he says to Zosima that he will confess. And he, he says that partly knowing that Zosima wants him to do that because Zosima knows that until he does, um, he won't have any relief in his soul. By the way, this is the Dimsdale story again. I don't know if anybody was... But once again, we're faced with a man who committed a crime who... And as a matter of fact, here's what the, the irony, one of the great irony. Everybody in his community looks up to him and he says every time something happened to increase the um, adulation he received, it just made the guilt worse. So he's, he's grown more and more intense in his shame and guilt. Alyosha knows it and wants him to confess. Um, and at one point here, I want to look at this. He, he leaves and comes back. Um, sorry. 312. One time he left and came back shortly afterwards and then left again. And this is the eve of his birthday. And we go on to learn that on his birthday with his family together, he will confess the crime. And nobody, here it is, 
the prosecutors, the lawyers, nobody will believe him. What they come and he gives that he gives evidence that could only have come from that chamber, that the the person they accuse didn't have on him. So all the evidence supports his claim, but because he's that is because people live by appearances, they disbelieve him, and they think he's mad. But here on three twelve, he recalls um, an early episode when he left and came back, and he says here, three twelve. He could not speak, he was grasping for breath, ardently pressing my hand, looking at me fervently, but our conversation was not long. His wife was constantly peeking in at us. He still managed to whisper to me, do you remember how I came to you again at midnight? I told you to remember it. Do you know why I came? I came to kill you. I started. That is, the weight, the weight of holding on to appearances, of not shattering the image created by the world, by the impression he gave the world, was so great that it, it would lead him to kill him before he would confess. So carrying this weight, he comes back to kill Alyosha, and Alyosha is shocked by it. I think the man has probably shocked himself somewhat too. So we learn the next day, he confesses to his family, and um, <coughs> they don't believe him. Now, I want to do this quickly because I want to get to this one. Go over to three. Ali, or Zas, so the, the, a couple of things quickly. So in the middle of this narrative, we've been talking about narratives and what narratives can do to the epic. Or, you know. Remember that according to Aristotle, the plot is an imitation of an action. Whatever goes on, in the visible surface, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. He knew, as we all do, that there's something else underneath the surface. There's an invisible thing. So the visible events are imitating an invisible action, a spiritual change. So over the course of this, some inward change is taking place in people in a nation. It's a time of crisis. People are affected by it. Here, in the narrative, we know that Everything is presented sequentially, linearly. But here, and it's going to go on. Here in the middle, um, the time sequence is interrupted, and we're taken back to Zosima's life. And at the center of his life is scripture. Um, and I, I can't stress this enough. We know from Alyosha's account the direct words that Zosima is speaking words directly from the Bible. So we're not just getting Zosima's life, we're getting Zosima going to the most important thing in his life, which was scripture, hearing God's. So the best way to put it, it seems to me, is God's word is entering our time. We can even say disrupting it because the because the cause and effect sequence is being broken. Let me underscore this in a way. If you go to a Jane Austen novel, even, even Dickens plays with it in, in a way. Dostoevsky can learn a lot from Dickens. But if you go to Jane Austen's novel, just to take one, or, or 18th, 19th century British novels, say, or European French novels, the assumption of the novelist in that time period is um, the integrity of the human soul and um, cause and effect causality. One thing happens after another. 
So whoever the narrator is, that narrator is working off of an assumption that the world is explainable, it's coherent. Um, you could, Jane Austen, it's coherent, very coherent. There will be a problem you have to face, but it'll be resolved and you'll get to the end. Dickens plays with that. He has black shifts in time. Dostoevsky is doing something even more radical. So what we're watching here is narrative sequence interrupted by a different time. So a different time inserts itself by however you want to describe it. When we did Sound of the Fury, those of you, or Faulkner, but Sound of the Fury, and you remember Sound of the Fury began with the Benji episode. Benji was an idiot. The narr this was what, that, what Faulkner did. Nobody did he came close to doing what he did. We're following Benji and um, uh, what was the black slave's name? Do you remember Doug Benji and um, Clarence? Benji and the and the guy um, who's looking after him, um, Dilsey's son. So he, the narrator is describing what happens. Um, and then suddenly, because we're in Benji's mind, largely, suddenly, because the golfers are going caddy, caddy, Benji's thrown back to Candace, who was called Caddy, his sister, and continuously, the narrative sequential cause and effect time is interrupted because we're in the unconscious. And we know, Freud, I mean, Freud had a real influence here, that linear time isn't the way that it seems, because we can be going through our world, everything's okay, suddenly a flashback, let's say it's to a traumatic moment. That something that happened in our past, particularly, you say something particularly joyful, generally it's something painful, it's depressing, it's sad, intrudes and linear time changes because we're not in the, we're in the present, but something in the past becomes a part of it, they overlap. So the conventional time sequence, linear sequence novel it doesn't go out the window because cause and effect is real. But we begin to understand that there are different time dimensions. Science reinforces that with the discoveries in physics. So um, it changes the way narrative artists do their work. Dostoevsky's doing it here. We go back into Zosima's past, so we go back into a past. But it's not just that. So much of what Zosima does speaks directly out of the Bible or quotes words which God speaks to us directly. Let's see. That's directly from Christ. So the Word is incarnating, being incarnated in this world, centering this world. Um, and then, as it's soon a as God wink, huh? It's a God wink. God wink. God wink. 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 What's that, sir? Well, you know, whenever you know, whenever God intervenes, you know, by definition, time is no longer relevant. Right? The past, present, and future, by definition, have to all occur at the same time. And we witness that for a brief moment. Okay. Which is what's about to happen to Elosha. Yeah. Remember, there is no past, future for God. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So then we, by virtue of a, a brush with God, if you will, it has to be that way for us as well. That moment. That moment. Yeah, right. So remember, too, that things pick up here. But remember that at this point, preceding... Theodore's death, the word enters time. So two things are happening right now. One is 
Zosima's life has come in, and we know that it has this impact on Alyosha. The word has entered time, um, and it's going to be followed by a murder. Um, somebody's got, uh, and it's, I don't want to give it away, but you guys have got to do this reading. Anyway, here, so we break from the Zosima story, and Alyosha returns to the monastery, and there's all this stir, and what we realize is even if we don't fully credit what Father Fairpont said about the demons, there's some truth to what he said because what we see now when Zosima's body begins to decay and give off a stench is we watch this horrible envy and pride on the part of these monks to discredit Zosima, to say he was an evil man, and it's, it's during this time that Alyosha has his crisis. Um, I want to just look at this. So he, he Alyosha returns. Um, we learn that lots of the town people turned on Zosimo, the monks did, that there's this buried cynicism in people, this dark way of looking at things. It's, 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 it's really amazing. It picks up with the three temptations. They won't allow for a mystery. They've got to be able to explain everything. They will not allow for a mystery. And it all gets reduced to a dark reason. What reason can do to darken things. Um, which is one of the things Christ came to answer. Um, okay, here's where I want to go. Um, where? Oh, wait, hold on. God. Yeah. Um, Alyosha experiences this dis disillusioning moment, and he leaves, and he's met by Rakatan who takes him to Grushenka with the intent of um, tempting Alyosha to lose his innocence. Because it, it's been worked out between Rakuten and Grushenka that um, she has sex with him. So Rakuten is a snake. He takes her, he takes him to Grushenka's. She sits on his lap in a pertentious way. Alyosha's not bothered by it, which throws, I think, Throws things off a little bit. And then, interestingly, Rakatan tells Grushenka what's going on with um, Alyosha because he seems sad. And when she hears that, she confesses that she's always, always admired him and felt ashamed when he was around because he made her aware, um, he, he made her aware of her lack of innocence, of something not good in herself and her heart opens to him. She tells the story of this onion going over. Um, here's this. Um, oh, God. Where's the, sorry. She tells the story of this woman. It's, a, it's an old legend. Um, of this, uh, here on page 352. She says in the middle of the page, just a fable but a good one, she says, she describes this story of a woman dying and um, the devils took her and threw her into the lake of fire. Her guardian angel stood thinking, what good deed of hers can I remember to God? Tell God. Then he remembered and said to God, once she pulled up an onion and gave it to a beggar woman 
God answered, Now take that same onion, hold it out to her in the lake. Let her take hold of it and pull. And if you can pull her out of the lake, she can go on to paradise. But if the onion breaks, she can stay where she is. So he offers her the onion to pull her out of the lake. And remember, it's based on this one good deed that she gave an onion to this woman. But then when other souls in the lake see that she's being pulled out, they grasp her legs, obviously increasing the weight on the onion. Um, the angel ran to the woman and held the onion, onion to her. Here, woman, he said, take hold of it and I'll pull. Then he began pulling carefully. I'd almost pulled her all the way out when other sinners in the lake saw her being pulled out and all began holding on to her so as to be pulled out with her. But the woman was wicked, as wicked could be, and she began to kick them with her feet. It's me who's getting pulled out, not you. It's my onion, not yours. No sooner did she say that than the onion broke. She falls back into the burning lake. Um, now, go on, let's see. 350. Grushenko is talking about Katrina and the ugly scene that took place between them. Um, really, Rakuten suddenly put in against serious surprise. She's really afraid of you, Alyosha, chicken that you are. To you, he's a chicken, Rakuten. That's what, because you have no conscience. That's what. You see, I love him with my soul. That's what. Do you believe me, Alyosha, that I love you with all my soul? She goes on like this. Um, bottom of 352. You'd better to look at here at her. Did you see how she spared me? I came here looking for a wicked soul. I was drawn to that because I was low and wicked myself, but I found a true sister. Both of them are fending Rakuten off. Um, he wanted to use them to bring evil between them, to really make um, Alicia fall. Um, Grushenka declares her love for him, and now he's defending her because he's acknowledging that he himself is wicked um, and, and that he looks at her now as a sister. So the two of them have declared this um, warmth between them and um, she, she gets teary because she feels a love from another man that she's not known from a man before. And it's as if her heart opens to him. Um, 353 at the bottom, I wanted to ruin you, I was quite determined. And that's the great truth. I wanted it so much that I bribed Rakuten with money to bring him. All of this was set up, but it's changed. I just want to stop here because I don't want to forget this moment. One of the interesting things about this passage for me is a grace is taking place, and it's confirming Boethius. Rakuten, Rakuten had only one intent. It was evil. And that intent gets transformed to a good. It, you just can't underestimate. He went in... Grushenka went into the evening expecting to have sex to corrupt this kid. What comes out of it is this extraordinary love. So Rakuten actually served for a good, even though he went into it. It's wonderful to watch that, you know, just in a, nothing happened, I mean, it's a good scene, but it's wonderful to see that that's happening. That's, that's an indication of Dostoevsky showing there is this grace at work in the world where bad things are happening, something else is. He leaves now to go back to the monastery. When he arrives, he sees um, Paisi praying, going to 360. Father Paisi has been kneeling beside Zosima's body now since the death. And at this point, when Alyosha returns, um, 
Pacey's reading from the Cana, the wedding, okay, the uh, Cana wedding miracle, not the 360. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana, Galilee, read Father Pacey, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called. Here it is, the word, here, the word is inscripted into the language of the text, the narrative. So the words, the language ongoing, receives into it another script. And this is the living word. Um, marriage, or, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Marriage? What was that? Marriage. So, Alyosha's kneeling next to Pacey. He's exhausted. Exhausted. And I, partly falling asleep, partly conscious. Um, marriage swept like a whirlwind through Alyosha's mind. There is happiness for her too. She went to the feast. No, she didn't take a knife. She didn't take a knife. That was only a pathetic phrase. So you can hear his own consciousness, conscious thought, intermingling with the Bible. One should forgive pathetic phrases. One must. Pathetic phrases ease the soul. Without them, men's grief would be too heavy. Rakuten walked off into the alley. As long as Rakuten thinks about the, his grudges, he will always walk off into some alley. But the road, the road is wide, straight, bright, crystal, and the sun is at the end of it. Ah, what are they reading? And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Alyosha overheard. Ah, yes, I've been missing it and didn't want to miss it. I love that passage. It's Cana of Galilee, the first miracle. Ah, that miracle, ah, that lovely miracle, not grief, but men's joy. Christ visited when he worked his first miracle. He held men's joy. He who loves men loves their joy. The dead man used to repeat it all the time. It was one of his main thoughts. That's Zosima. One cannot live without joy, says Mitya. Yes, Mitya. All that is true. Do you hear things like, yet, yes, Mitya. It's just like another voice other than his the own coming from his consciousness is entering his consciousness. Yes, Mitya, all that's true and beautiful is always full of all forgiveness. That too, he used to say. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whoever saith unto you, do, do it. Joy, the joy of some poor, very poor people. Because you know that the poor people were always on, on so the people constantly as well. The next page, 361. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots. You remember the direction. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have drunk, um, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So the good wine was presented, but now it's presented with an even better good wine. Good wine. But what's this? What's this? Why are the walls of the room opening out? Ah, yes, this is the marriage, the wedding feast. Yes, of course. Here are the guests. Here are the newlyweds and the festive crowd. And where is the wise ruler of the feast? But who's this? Who? Again, the room is opening out. Who is getting up from the big table? Is he here, too? Why is he, is he in the coffin? But here, too, he's gotten up. He seems to me he's coming over. Lord! Good on over. Zosima begins to speak directly to Alyosha. His voice, the elder Zosima voice, how could it be anyone else since he was calling? 
The elder raised Alyosha a little with his hand, and Alyosha got up from his knees. We are rejoicing, the little wizened man continued. We are drinking new wine, the wine of a new and great joy. See how many guests there are. Here are the bridegroom and the bride. Here is the wise ruler of the feast, tasting the new wine. Why are you marveling at me? <laughs> I gave a little onion, and so I'm here. And there are many here who only gave an onion, only one little onion. What are our deeds? And you, quiet one, you, my meek boy, today you too were able to give a little onion to a woman who hungered. Begin, my dear, begin, my meek one, do your work. And do you see our son? Do you see him? I'm afraid. I don't dare look. It goes on, but I want to stop here. What's happening to time right now? Bill. Um, What's happening? Well, we're going back and forth in time. Yeah. Can you describe the time? Well, uh, going back to the scripture, to the you know, to the wedding, and uh, then Alyosha hears or sees Zosima mm -hmm. and talking about the joy of of that that miracle. Christ's first miracle. Yeah. Yep. Debbie, what's your response to this passage? Because <clears throat> I know you're responding. Don't say, I know you are. <laughs> I don't believe that. Not for a second. No. No? I've got nothing today. <laughs> no, I, I don't believe that. Frances, what do you, what's your response? Well, it's probably the present, past, and the future all together. Where there's no time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe narrative time right now? What's happening? Don't look at him. I don't know. That's all I got. <laughs> I don't believe That's any enough. of you guys. Mary, you want to jump in here? No, I don't want to jump today. Um, I, would, I would say time is, 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 is really... It's just presence. It's existential. I mean, I, I, I don't. I see past, present, and future all at once. Here. Mm -hmm. Here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's Carlson. Uh, so you think what? Yeah. You know, when we're talking about a ritual, uh, ritual always brings in eternal time into uh, what we call time. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. And I think is is Kronos and. What's the other word? Uh, Kairos. 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 So that that you know, distinguish the two. Kronos is uh, is the is the sense of time that you know it's, it's linear. It's like one event after the other. Right. But when you get when you it, 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 like you go to mass, you are experiencing eternal time coming into Kronos. You call that Kairos. Kairos, right? Yeah. Kairos coming into Kronos. And so that that you're you're it's a wedding. You well well, and the whole thing the whole thing expands because the walls are breaking down. Right. So consciousness is right. is is evolving. Right. And that that uh, and it's healing. Is a, this is a, a, a graceful moment. Mm -hmm. But until that these two mentions meet or intersect, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Doug, would you anything? What, no. Here, wait, I've got a question, sorry, because we've talked, I'm, I'm, what do you do with this onion? 
Remember that, hold on, this is really, remember, he just left Grushenka. She told the story about the woman. Um, that's a separate scene from this scene. We go to this scene, and in this scene, the walls start fading, as you describe, and Alyosha finds himself with Zasava at the feast, um, tasting the new wine, experiencing this joy. And then Zasima says, why are you marveling at me? I gave a little onion, and so I'm here. Now, what do you all do, Fred? What's I, I think it's I think it's the epitome of irony. What's an onion is? You think of an onion. I mean, it's a smelly thing. You know, you peel it, you get it all over you. It takes days for it to go away, kind of thing. But I think I think it. I that think sounds it, so depressing. In, in this story, I think it's it's absolute love. It's when. When you, when you give it all up for somebody else, basically, whether you're trying to pull them out of the fire or, you know, you're helping them through a crisis or whatever it is, it's the onion. And I think in this case, you know, we're, we stopped just short of it, but Alicia's getting his onion. You oh, know? From, yeah. Because, I mean, he, he, you know, it's, he went into this thing with a crisis, a, a true crisis of faith for the hero of the story and he comes out of it and everything changes and I think you, you see this break in the novel and it's like a and I don't know if Dostoevsky meant this or if I'm just making all this up you know but it's yeah. like we get this god wink moment you it's know? in the middle of the novel and time goes completely yeah. away and and it's it's all one unity and then the whole novel changes. Yeah, just don't forget. Cause, so I cause think this, the onion is is what Zosima is talking about yeah. when he talks about love and and how we should treat each other regardless of how much it. I mean, I, it would be like me going out and embracing Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> Which I will not do. <laughs> um, Which, but, Traditionally, something rather insignificant. I mean, it's just something that you, you know, add to, to food. But here, Zosima is saying that it's just this, the small things. It only takes one one kind act, one act of love, uh, yeah, to be considered, you know, worthy of paradise. Right, right. You don't right. have to be, you know, In the other story, again, you represents, I think, a way out of hell. Uh, it's a way of salvation, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the part of the question that I'm asking here is, these two things are disconnected in time. Right. The the onion things come comes in as part of um, Grushenka's story. And so it's a part of the linear sequence. Now we're in this vision that Alyosha has in which he seems to be participating in the wedding feast with Zosima. And Zosima mentions an onion. He didn't have to do that. The fact that Dostoevsky did that indicates what? Is everybody following one? It's, 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 it's in sequence. It, I, or I put it different. Zosim, apparently, I mean, our assumption would be Zosim is dead. He wasn't there in the Grushenka scene. And yet we're in this scene right now and he's using the metaphor of an onion. Well, you have, if you have dreams, 
that often happens, um, you know, where something that happened during the day that you remember mm -hmm. unconsciously, you may not have made a big thing of it at the time, but it'll show up in your dream. Um, and um, Alyosha was there when Grishenka told the story, and now he's here for. Except it's Zosima using. Wait, I want It's a dream, yeah. So, but I think we're. I think most of us know that dreams convey things to us that reason can't grasp. It's a subrational world. And in this case, I think we're supposed to assume this is not just a dream, it's reality. This is paradise. This is heaven. And Zosima is the one who uses the word onion, which suggests what? That Zosima hmm? Zosima knew what what had transpired between yeah between yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and that story yeah I just think that's so crucial it's taking something from the world in linear time and becomes a part of something in eternity he's the one who mentions it uses it as a frame of reference not Alyosha like somehow he, he knows. huh he knows yeah, yeah, that he's, he himself is relating to our time, so he can draw on it. And obviously this is a communion, I mean, it's, it's a feast of love, it's a joy. You know, Alyosha is coming out of his misery, this is, he, he's undergoing a trial and the walls start disappearing and Zosima, it's just extraordinary, Zosima is appearing to him and talks to him in terms that just refer to something that just happened before he got here. So he seems, he seems to, because he's in God's world, he seems to be aware of things the way God would. He can, he can relate to Alyosha in those terms. So it's not just, I mean, it, I thought your description, but your, the, the way you use Kairos and Kronos, Tom, got to it, that in that intersecting moment, that still point, you enter time, it's Elliot, you enter time and if, if any of us felt like entering that world, we would lose something, we learned that that's not the case. That as a matter of fact, what's on the other side of that point is this fullness of time that somehow relates in a spirit of love to everything going on in our world. And, and the onion was significant for all the, you know, for the reasons you said, that it seems to be this nothing. Well, it becomes paradoxical. In one moment, you, you cuss the onions up strong enough to pour out and she, you know, she turns against the people in the mm -hmm. lake. But in this case, the onion is a is a is such a it's, it's subtle. It's much subtler, or it's not a, an object you grab. It's an attitude you adopt, or you know. And, yeah. and, and I think that awareness that he has that that in this state of awareness that he's given. Yes, it's a, it's a great unfolding grace. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, just know that from this point on, because this is a, I mean, this is Alyosha's trial. It's a crisis for him and he comes through it. From this point on, things are going to get dark. Really dark. My eyes are watering. I'll just talk of the onion. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs>
you, you, all, Dwayne, you all remember that next week we're not meeting. Yes. Okay. You all have a, um, a blessed week with Lev. Um, I hope you're all praying for us. I'm, you know that Suzanne and I are grateful for your prayers. Any sense in which you are helping to pull us up the mountain, we would be grateful. And also just stay safe. Okay, and because things are closing in, but yeah, yeah. I'm just going to say, an onion symbolically, you know, as, as this gentleman said, goes through a lot, but and it gets all over it. But if you don't cut off the end of it, it won't smell as bad. If you keep that that stem in there, it doesn't smell. You and Bev, you and Bev, oh, wow. you and Bev need to open a a, a church kitchen. <laughs> Don't cut off the stuff that you, we instinctively think we're going to cut off, which is that root of system. And that plays into the tradition and everything you're talking about. Okay. Wow. Good. Good. That's insightful. No, I'm not. I'm just, no, I'm not at all. More importantly for me, I hope if we're ever in a situation um, and you're getting pulled up, I hope you won't shake me off if I grab your legs. <laughs>